Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. This is uh, the great word of our great God, and uh, as his word deserves to be taken with the highest reverence and seriousness, and also uh, we are to receive it with joy. Uh, We are to rejoice uh, that our God has spoken to us and has given us this word. So Luke chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading at verse 35. And Lord willing, we're going to read to the end of verse 59. This is God's word. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. 
Well, this is uh, obviously a, a serious and a sobering uh, passage in the teaching of Jesus. And so before we uh, consider it together, let's pray. Lord, we would ask uh, that you will give us eyes to see uh, the beauty and the glory and the truth of your word. Uh, Allow us to discern its meaning so that we can see you, the living God, through it. Father, we would ask that you would shape us as people who respond appropriately to your word. Help us to love you. Help us to see you. Help us to uh, taste you. Help us to know you by experience. And help us to adore you and revere you and honor you in all that we do. Father, in this passage, you call us, your son in his earthly life called us to listen and to live and to be ready to meet you face to face. And Lord, we pray that this morning, every one of us will be found ready, ready to stand before their maker, ready to stand before a holy and righteous judge, ready to stand before the one who knows everything about them. Lord, prepare all of our hearts in grace to know you and to be savingly found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that your hand will be upon us as we go into this fall, as we have a variety of ministries that are gearing up. Lord, we confess that we can be very busy and active and yet nothing whatsoever can be accomplished for good unless your Holy Spirit is at work. And so we ask for a full measure of your Spirit. May he fill every heart. Me, even now, may he be preparing the hearts of those who will be here, whether it's through Sunday school or through onside or through whatever it is, Lord. We just pray that there will be genuine fruit uh, produced in your kingdom this fall through what you do. And may it be so evident that it is by your hand alone that you receive all the glory, rather than us trying to take credit for it uh, in any way. Lord, for those uh, who are uh, expecting uh, babies in the near future, we just pray that you will uh, be with them, strengthen them, give the doctors and nurses uh, wisdom and skill, uh, bring these little ones who are already living people, bring them into the world safely, uh, bring them into a place of health and happiness, and may they also experience the joy of being born again uh, at an early age. Be with our university students, uh, draw them close to you, keep them safe uh, physically and emotionally and spiritually, uh, draw them closer to you than they have ever been before. And I pray that through their witness, through their passion for you, through the holy flame of your purity in their lives, that there will be a great uh, awakening of sinners on our university campus, uh, that there will be many people who come to know you, uh, who came to Guelph uh, to study a variety of subjects, but may they find themselves studying you uh, more than anything else and finding purpose and meaning in Jesus Christ. Open your word to us, uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, I'm not sure if you're if you're here regularly, you might you might discern that uh, I'm a little bit sniffly today, and a little bit of a sore throat. It's that time of year, at least for me. You don't even I don't even get out of 
August, and I'm succumbing to cold and flu season. So it's already it's already happened. I have my water bottle in case I start choking, uh, and I need to have a drink. Uh, and so we're going to do our best uh, to work through this uh, together. This is a long section, but thematically it all holds together. You're, you're hitting the same notes, and you're looking at the same jewel, but just from slightly different angles sort of throughout this text. And this is not an isolated section. The last two weeks, we've been looking at what Jesus has been saying in chapter 12, and one of the things that he has said very starkly, very strongly, is do not be afraid of those who can kill your body, but after that can do no more. Fear rather the one who has the authority, after your body is dead, to cast your soul into hell. And so Jesus has given a very strong warning. He's put the eternal state before people's eyes. It's something you need to reflect on. This world is not the only bit of life and conscious experience that you will have. Uh, in fact, there is a time coming when you will stand before God and you will enter into what will be uh, your permanent condition and your permanent home. And we really just don't have the capacity as finite beings to even begin to understand what eternity future means. I mean, we can talk about um, sort of the enormous spaces that exist in our universe. And really all it does is it just becomes a, a bunch of numbers that we can write down, but we can't actually grasp them. I mean, we can, we can understand most of us, you know, sort of the difference between, you know, a meter and a kilometer. Uh, we might be able to understand a little bit sort of perception wise what it means to travel a few hundred kilometers. Maybe if you, you know, travel a lot, you fly a lot, you may have some sort of understanding of what it means to traverse a few thousand kilometers, uh, through the marvel of, you know, jet aircraft. Uh, but really, when we start talking about how far is it to the sun, how far is it to the outer reaches of our galaxy, how far is it, you know, to halfway across the universe, we can say the number. We have no idea what it means. And so to try to get through to people, it is so bafflingly impossible, though, is to say, you know what, you might have, you might, it's contingent, we don't know, you, you might have maybe something approaching a century of time here in this world. But there are trillions and trillions and trillions of centuries of time after death that you will experience. It is a number that we can't imagine. It is a time that never ends. And so it just becomes so urgent in the biblical witness that you understand that not only is this life not the end of existence, this life is is just one water drop in the ocean of reality that you will experience. Small wonder then, Jesus says, what do you gain if you get everything the world has to provide, but you lose your very self, you lose your very soul? What do you gain if you sort of make the, the Faustian bargain and you are blessed with all that the world has to provide for 60, 70, 80, 100 years, and then for eternity, you are outside of the presence of God, cut off from joy and meaning and holy purpose. What, what do you gain? And so although, you know, there are light moments in scripture, although there are, there are doctrines which fill our hearts with joy, there are also very sobering realities 
Jesus is not always just teaching fun and games. He is calling us to real living. He's calling us to actually open our eyes and understand the stakes of what it means to have been created in the image of God. You have a soul that will be reunited with a resurrection body that will endure for an eternity in the future. So since that's the case, what do you do? Well, Jesus is very clear. You better be ready. And that's the one very simple thought that unites this whole section. Are you ready? You will. It is inevitable. It is guaranteed. It is unavoidable. You will stand before the risen, glorified Christ when he returns in his glory. You will stand before him and have to give an account for your life. You will have to give an account to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as to what you have done with the gifts and the power and the strength and the life and the resources which he has given to you in his grace. The Lord may call you out of this world into his presence or for the generation that is on earth at the very end, he will come into this world revealing his glorious presence. But there is a date that you have which has been written down since before the foundation of the world when you will meet your maker and you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you ready? Are you ready? Because it's not something that you can thoughtfully keep putting off until tomorrow. There's an urgency that requires that you would make sure you are right with God now. That if Jesus Christ were to return now, you would actually be ready to stand before him without shame and without fear. So the great question that hangs out then is this. If the Lord Jesus Christ were to return... Uh, before I finish this message, or if the Lord Jesus Christ were to return before I finish this sentence, would it be right with your soul? Would you be ready to stand before him today? Well, what do we do? It says verse 35, be dressed, ready for service. Keep your lamps burning. The, the picture is of uh, a household full of slaves. And I go back, I go back and forth uh, translators go back and forth about the propriety of using the word servant or the word slave in terms of translation. Slave brings up the wrong connotation uh, for us at this point in history because we mediate everything we think about slavery through uh, 1800s, you know, southern United States slavery, which was quite different from slavery in the biblical world. However, uh, the language of servant also leaves a little bit to be desired. And so the probably here, you're supposed to understand, these are household slaves. And Jesus is drawing on imagery, which is actually very, uh, it's very violent. And you saw that, in, or you heard that in, in the text in the verses following, where slaves will be beaten with many blows. Slaves will be cut to pieces. This is sort of a, a pervasive reality for people in the Greco-Roman world. Slaves could be beaten. They were their master's property. And so probably for us today, it's best to understand these people as slaves. The slave is waiting for the master to return, and he knows that he needs to be ready. And so if you've ever been waiting for someone to show up at your house, uh, and you know that sometimes you you get a little bit 
jittery. There's a sense of anticipation. And you can go and look out the window. Are they here yet? Is, is their car pulling up? And I thought I heard a sound. And, and so you're always sort of looking. Do you hear someone at the door? And, and you're looking and you're waiting and you're, there's an anticipation. And here these slaves have that exact same anticipation. The master is coming. They, they cannot afford to be caught sitting when the master shows up. Uh, they need to be ready. And so they're up. The lights are on. They're pacing around. They're ready. So that as soon as he comes to the door, they've opened it and they've welcomed, welcomed him in. Are you ready that way? Are you anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, what the Lord says here is in, later on when he talks about it, it will be good for that servant who has been put in charge of feeding you know, the fellow slaves uh, that he be found doing that. In other words, Jesus has given you a job to do. Different stages of life have different responsibilities. Every individual has a unique responsibility. And so it doesn't mean that if Jesus is going to come back at three in the morning, you better not be sleeping, right? Uh, what it means is that in the orientation of your life, the, the whole orientation of your life should revolve around serving him and knowing him and loving him and doing your resp- and discharging all of your responsibilities here in this world. And so if Jesus returns and you know you're spending time, you know, playing games with your children, that's not a bad thing. Uh if Jesus returns and you're studying for an exam, that's not a bad thing. Uh if Jesus returns and you're eating dinner or you're having a nap if you need a nap, I mean that's not a bad thing. So this is not saying, you know, make sure you never have any leisure, make sure you never have any enjoyment. All you have to do you know is just sort of sit there just saying over to yourself again and again and again, well, Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back. It means you get out and you start living your life for Jesus. So that whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's a time of leisure because you need to relax in order to, to be productive, whether it's you know reading, whether it's preaching, whether it's sharing your faith, whether it's doing whatever vocational job you have to the best of your ability, whether it's being a student, whether it's playing hockey, I mean, whatever you're doing in terms of a fully balanced life, you are not ashamed when Jesus Christ returns because you have oriented your life around him. Everything that you are and do is for his glory. Now, this will clearly, though, weed out an enormous number of things that we should never be doing. Because I do think, and this can be overdrawn sometimes, but I do think uh, sort of an entailment of this would be that you should never be doing anything that you would be ashamed to be doing if Jesus Christ were to return at that moment. And so, although it may not be wrong to be relaxing and watching a movie there would be an enormous number of movies that you probably should never be watching because it would be absolutely shameful to imagine the Lord Jesus Christ manifesting himself before you in front of the TV while you were watching that. Now, on the other hand, it's also a good reminder that the Lord Jesus Christ is actually perfectly well aware of everything you're watching all the time, whether he's manifested himself in your visual field or not. He is there. He's in the room. He sees all that you are doing all of the time. And so if we were to actually apply this principle, there would just be an enormous number of things that we would not do, that we would not see, that we would not listen to, that we would not spend our time on. Be ready. When the Lord returns. 
Now, notice this in verse 37. It will be good for those servants or those slaves whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. You can't make this up. There is no religion in the world that conceives of their God like this. There is no religion in the world that has a God who serves his slaves. This is what Jesus Christ says. When I return, I will take my faithful people and I will install them in eschatological end-time glory. I will put them at the banqueting table. I will prepare a lavish feast for them. And I myself, their master, will serve them. There is no religion that teaches this. There is no system of philosophy that teaches this. There is no God like this. In fact, this is one of the the amazingly glorious things about God's revelation in his word from Old to New Testament. In the Old Testament, in in the book of Isaiah, God stands up and he says, which God is like me who acts on behalf of his people? who serves them. And then he lists all of the false gods, all of the idols. He says, have you ever noticed that all of the false gods, all of those idols, the people have to pick them up and carry them where they're going. Have you ever noticed, he's even saying this to the people in, in Israel, he's saying, have you noticed that when the Assyrians are coming in or when the Babylonians are coming in, you know, when you look around, one of the first things people do is they grab their gods and start running off with their gods and their gods are a burden to them. I mean, who has the power? Who has the power? It's the people. They have to carry their gods. Their gods can't do anything for them. They load up their idols in carts and have to carry their gods off. God says, who is like me? You don't carry me anywhere. I carry you. I carry you up on eagle's wings. Who is like me? A God who acts to serve his people. And there is no one like that. There is no other God who is the lion and the lamb. There is no other God who is the eagle and the dove. There is no other God who is majestic and meek. There is no other God who is transcendent and humble. There is no other God who combines these seeming opposites into perfect unity. This God who brings extremes and polarities together in the essence of his being and action. There is no other God like this. There is no other God who, because the force of the Greek, because he is in the very nature of God, he does not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but makes himself nothing, taking upon himself the form of a servant, being found as a man, he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. There is no other king who washes the feet of his subjects. There is no other king who dies in the place of his people. There is no other king like this. So why be ready and waiting? Be ready and waiting because there is no one like this. In all of human imagination, there is no one like this. In all of human sort of religious sensibilities and and conscience and reflection, there has never been anything created in our own image 
that comes close to this because we can't image this. We can't imagine this. This is not how we think. This is not what we would do if we were God. We don't invent a God like this. And all the religions of the world prove that. We don't, as human beings, invent this type of God. This type of God can only reveal himself to us because he shatters all of our human categories for the way we think things should be. And this is one of the reasons that the biblical message is, is self-authenticating. It, it reveals its own truth and glory through its meaning and content. There is no God like this as witness to in this book. And so this book must be from him because we can't imagine and dream up a deity like this. Be waiting for Jesus because if you are faithful to him, if your trust is in him, he will serve you. And that shouldn't be a surprise because that's all he's ever done for you. He has served you in his incarnation. He has served you in sustaining your life through his powerful word. He has served you by blessing you. He has served you by coming to earth. He has served you by having an act of righteousness. He has served you by laying his life down for you. He has served you by taking his life up again. He has served you by electing you and calling you to belong to him and uniting you with his body. He has served you in all that he has ever done. And so we praise him and we serve him in return. And the amazing thing about it is that our service for him is not even anything that he needs. Uh, as Paul says in, in Acts 17, this is, and this is something I, think, I always think, you know, when we're, when we're busy, we're talking about all the ministries that we're trying to do and all the things we're trying to accomplish. We need to always remember that whatever it is that we're doing, God doesn't need it to be done. Or he doesn't need us to be doing it. Paul says, you know, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. In other words, who do you think you are? Do you really think? I mean, do I, am I really so sort of self-absorbed that I actually honestly believe that God is just horribly dependent on me to open up the truth of his word? You know, that, that God couldn't sort of manifest himself here on the platform and do a much better job than I can explaining who he is and what he requires of us. He, he doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. And so when he calls us to serve, it's because he is blessing us. In the same way that as, as every parent with children knows, when they're, when they're this big, they're actually not helping in the kitchen. You know, I know that. And that's why we have to send the little kids out to children's church so that we don't burst their bubble. Like, don't tell them. You know, they're actually not helping. It's harder. <laughs> it takes longer. It's messier. It's not helpful. We don't need them. But isn't it a delight? Isn't it a joy for the family? Isn't that something that, that brings families together? That they delight not in not in the necessity of the work, but in the dynamic of the relationship and then seeing the growth in skills and all the rest. I mean, it's a delight. It's not, it's not for the parent, it's for the child. And so we must not think, oh, God needs me. Really, I'm, I'm just the one who's 
dropping the eggs on the floor. You know, that's, that's what I contribute to the kingdom. I, I, I break the eggs in the wrong place and I, you know, I hold the measuring cup, you know, over the bowl and I pour the flour in and it gets too heavy and it falls in and the flour just dumps it and God has to sort it all out. I mean, we, we make the messes, but God delights in us as his children. And so he calls us, be my helpers. Come on, guys. There's, there's something I need done. I, I want you to come and help me. You know, but it's really not because he needs it. It's because of the personal relational dynamic. We are called to serve the God who serves us. Now, if you will not recognize that the God who calls you to serve him is a God who will serve you with nail-scarred hands in glory. In other words, if you will persist in fighting against his rule and lordship, if you will resist your master, then your eternal destination is as starkly contrasted with the positive message of glory can be possibly imagined. The language drawn is terrible. Cut to pieces. Assigned to a place with unbelief. It's one of the reasons you can't take all this language literally, right? I mean, but the, so you aren't actually, if you're cut to pieces, there's really nothing to assign anywhere. You know, you've sort of been obliterated. Uh, But the, the image is to be taken in a composite sense. What could be worse? What could be more destructive? What could be more ruinous? As much as there is unspeakable and unimaginable glory with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords serving us at the banquet table that he has established in his love and righteousness. As much as there could be nothing better than that, there could be nothing worse than being cast out of his presence and being destroyed. And so you need to be very careful. And then Jesus also says this. He says, listen. Absolutely every single person on the face of the earth is responsible to me. Romans 1 makes this very clear. Every single person on the face of the earth knows God through what has been made, through moral law and conscience, and they are responsible to him. And so you can't, you can't go anywhere in all the history of the world, in any place of the part of the globe, and find someone who actually knows nothing about God. And those who do not serve the Lord will be punished, but... We are punished in proportion to the revelation that God has given us. So those who do not know the master's will, that is those who who don't know that much about the master, he says they are punished with few blows. But those who know more, those who actually have the master's instructions and fail to put it into practice, they will be punished more severely. They will be punished with many blows. And so I say this because Jesus says it. You need to take that very seriously. These aren't the words of an angry pastor. These are the words of Jesus Christ. To whom much is given, much is required. And there have never been a people in the history of the world who have more resources when it comes to understanding the word of God than we do. You can, you know, you can come here and I can do my best to explain the word of God and maybe, you know what, maybe I do a, a terrible job. 
So then you can just go home. And you can, at the press of a button, bring up the greatest preachers who are alive on planet Earth. And you can listen to as many of their sermons as you want. Uh, You can go online and you can listen to anyone that you want. You can get seminary classes for free online. You can get Bible aids galore online. You can get multiple translations online. You can get anything you want in order to understand the Word of God. No longer dependent on sort of a second-rate local pastor. You know, the whole world of evangelicalism is at your fingertips when it comes to learning about the Word of God. To whom much is given, much is required. And ignorance of the law is no excuse. Charles Spurgeon, in the 1800s, said, willful ignorance is in itself willful sin. And what that means is that if you have the opportunity and you just choose not to exercise the opportunity God has given you, then you are just as culpable as someone who knew and failed to do it. Because you had the opportunity. You had every opportunity to learn and to grow and to know when you decided that you know Facebook was more important. And you will stand before God. And you will give an account. And you will explain. And you will. And many of us, I mean, we will explain why the status updates of people we really don't even know or care about were more important than the words of Jesus Christ in our life. Not theoretically, but practically, day in and day out, why we chose to read more words on Facebook than we ever dreamed of reading in the Word of God, day after day after day after day. To whom much is given, much is demanded. And these are things that are said intentionally to be sobering, to get us to realize the enormous immensity of the claims of Christ on our lives and how we are to live. See, because it's not just about theory, it is about living. You are to change how you live on the basis of who Jesus is and on the basis of what will happen when he returns. Now, this sounds all very difficult and not, not extraordinarily happy. And then Jesus makes it worse in verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth and I wish it was already kindled. In other words, I came to set the world on fire and I wish it was burning. I have a baptism to undergo. I will be immersed. I will be submerged in anguish and pain. This baptism is referring to his death. And what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? Now, if you've been tracking with Luke's gospel, you might actually think that Jesus came to bring peace on earth because that's what all the angels sang. Right? Peace on earth. I mean, remember that? Remember when we have like a million Christmas carols? That's all they talk about. Peace on earth. Peace is great. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. Which means either the angels were wrong, or Jesus is wrong, or they're both saying slightly different things. Well, Jesus did come to bring peace, and he also came not to bring peace. He came to bring division. See, peace comes to those men on whom his favor rests. There's been a horrible misreading and misinterpretation of that verse. It's not peace for everyone. Everyone can be happy now. It's, there's peace that rests on the favored ones of God. Well, who are those? They are the ones who put their faith in Jesus Christ. There is no peace for the wicked, Jesus says. And so for us, uh, sorry, sorry, God says in Isaiah, there is no peace for the wicked. And so your peace comes through what Jesus is doing, 
but through being rightly related to him. There is no peace for those who resist Jesus. There is no peace for those who will die in their sin. There is no peace for those who keep fighting Jesus to the end of their life. There is no peace for the wicked. And so Jesus says, I have come, and my coming brings division. Families will be split. Families will be divided. There won't be peace in many homes. And let's be honest, there are a lot of homes where there is no peace because some follow the Lord Jesus Christ and some don't. And, and there is tension and there is turmoil. And there's a pulling apart. Sometimes, you know, close relationships can be severed because someone commits to Jesus Christ. And, and, and know this, you know, today in this world, today, there have been, there have been people who have, by their families, been executed today because they said, I will follow Jesus Christ and not Allah. That has happened today. That happens every day of the year. Fathers will kill their daughters because they have put their faith in Jesus Christ in the name of honor, in the name of Islam. That happens every day. I know a man who is now, uh, he died in his mid-70s, went to be with the Lord, uh, became a Christian. He was, in, he was a, came from a, an Orthodox Jewish family. When he told his family that he believed Jesus was the Messiah, they burned his possessions and had a funeral for him and said, you are dead to us. Jesus demands the highest allegiance in any relationship. And if you will follow him, depending on what people in your family think about Jesus, it may not bring peace. It will bring division. And then he said to the crowd, you know how to interpret the times and the weather. Sorry, rather, you know how to interpret the weather. Which is an amazing thing, because 2,000 years later, with all of our technology, our forecasts stink. But, you know, apparently back then they were a lot better at it. So you can, you know how to forecast the weather on the basis of what's going on. So why not spend a little bit of time learning how to forecast the time for your soul? Doesn't that make a lot more sense than, than trying to figure out all the ways to know whether it's going to rain tomorrow? Isn't it a lot more important to know where your soul, where you are going to be throughout all of eternity? And so Jesus says, why? You know how to forecast the weather. Why don't you take this seriously? You're going to stand before God. Learn how to live. And realize this, you can't avoid it. And that's what this little parable, this little illustration is. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? You know what? You are on your way to the heavenly courtroom where your eternal destiny will be decided. You're actually, every moment of your life, sort of in terms of an analogy, every moment of your life, every second that goes by, is just one step you are taking closer to the judge of all things. You're on the road. There's no turning back. You are going to court. God is your judge. So why not, Jesus says, why not make it right now before you get there? Why not settle out of court? Why not settle up with God now? Why not get right with God now? Because when it comes time to stand before him, if there hasn't been a settlement, you're guilty and the case is lost. So figure it out now. Make it right now because when you actually stand before the judge, it's too late. 
You will stand before him and you will either be innocent or you will be guilty. You make that decision and that transaction happens now. Now! Not after lunch. Not on your death, but it happens now. Because if you don't, that police officer who is escorting you to the court is going to turn you over to the court officials. The court officials are going to turn you over to the jail guards. And the jail guards are going to put you in your cell. And you're not getting out until you have paid down to the smallest coin the debt that you owe. And of course, in the hook in that is that in first century prisons, you didn't make license plates, you didn't get paid. You never had an income. You never got out. You never earned your own way. People could buy you out. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. He has paid our debt. He has bought us out. But you need to receive it now. Because then it's too late. Do you see, do you see the urgency of this? That you will stand before the Lord. You must be ready. And the only way to be ready is to be found trusting in Jesus, recognizing his death, recognizing his resurrection, having repented of your sin and trusted in him. Then you will be ready to stand before the Lord. We are told in the scripture, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it is. It is unimaginably terrible to fall into the hands of a living God. We have no idea what that's like. But the counterbalancing truth, the glory of the gospel, is that the hands of an angry God were pierced and bleeding. And the God who is the king and the God who is the judge who is also the God who serves. And so as Jesus says, and as I repeat and I plead with you, be reconciled on the way. Be reconciled in this life. And be ready. For that time when you stand before Jesus and you stand before the judge. Before we sing, I'm just going to ask that you just take a moment to pray. Just ask the Lord's Spirit to search your heart. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to stand before the Lord? To ask that he'll forgive you. To ask that he will be reconciled to you. To ask that you'll be found ready. And if your faith is in Jesus to thank him that he has saved you from the from death, he's saved you from hell, he's paid your penalty, and to rejoice, he is the God who serves. And he is the God who will serve you. So just take a moment before the Lord, then I'll lead us in prayer. Lord, these things are beyond our ability uh, to comprehend the, the glory of being served by the Lord Jesus Christ. It goes beyond the heights of glory. The agony of being separated from you and punished for our own sin goes beyond the depths of agony that we can comprehend. Father, between these two positions, there is no third. And so we pray, Lord, that you will open the eyes of our heart to help us to see Jesus, to help us to see who we are and to know 
that sinners like us can be saved and served by the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live our lives in proper and fitting response to the seriousness of these things. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.